Yes, we do indeed love um, our God and Father and Jesus. We gather because Jesus is the King of Kings. Uh, inside your handout uh, is this document. It's listed as Hope Initiative. Could you pull that out for me? So if you have an insert, I'd like you to do. We uh, first introduced this on Sunday, February 2nd. So this again is our Hope Initiative. On February 2nd, we went over 90-day, one-year, three-year, and five-year goals. Our five-year goal at Westward Christian Church is to plant three churches, three new churches. And uh, why? It's because the church is the hope of the world. So we would want people to put their hope in Jesus. Jesus is the body of Christ. The church is the hope of the world. Now, if you go to the other side, you'll notice our mission. Our mission now is to provide places where all people can find hope in Jesus. I don't know if you know, realize this or not, so we have all kinds of folks turning in prayer cards, prayer concern cards, and a lot of our prayer concern cards would have, it would say something like this, would you please pray for my friend, would you please pray for my family member, um, they're depressed and suicidal. There's a lot of folks that, I mean, their hope is, it's just, it's found in other things. Um, a, a friend of mine told me that this past week from the, uh, the Olentangy area, one dad committed suicide on Tuesday night. Another dad committed suicide on Thursday night. This past week. And so, you, don't you, I, I think you and I, we get it in the sense, I mean, a lot of times we're overwhelmed, overwhelmed with our problems, and then we don't see the one who can do something about our problems. We just want to bring hope to people. So again, we have this strategy. It's a discipleship strategy. We're calling this the four G's on this, this gather, grow, give, and go. And because again, if we're disciples of Jesus, then we would be bringing the hope of Christ to people in this life. So all of this was discussed on February 2nd. What we did not talk about are the values and measures listed at the top of this page. And so this is what we'd like to do today. So we're going to do a bit of tag team preaching today. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, John Kauser and Dan Stouffer and I'm up first. And so here we go. So first let's talk about cultural values. What is that? What does it mean when we say cultural value? Western Christian have seven of these. A cultural value is defined as a commonly held standard of what is acceptable or unacceptable, important or unimportant, right or wrong in a church. And our number one culture value, really number one, is this, Jesus first. It's Jesus. It's all about the Son of God. He's the King of Kings. And so how do we relate? How, what do we mean by that? Jesus came on a rescue mission. His mission satisfied God's desperate desire to love us infinitely. It cost him everything. We can't get it out of our minds, and we don't want to. Everything we do is about Jesus. Now, can I get an amen for that? Amen. It's like, hey, you're in agreement with that? It's like, this is where we are. This is what the church is. Um, I want you to see this picture. This is really exciting. So this couple, this is uh, Chris and Alicia Cowan. Um, I got to marry them uh, last July. And so on February 10th, it was a Monday morning, Chris baptized his wife, Alicia. So isn't that cool? I mean, isn't that exciting? It happens all the time. It just really does. It's like, okay, we're going to applaud. Let's really, uh, let's, let's, let's make it happen. But seriously, it's just really a cool thing. Now, my question is this, honestly, whether it's Alicia, why did Alicia do that? Why does anyone, why does anyone make a choice to be baptized? Well, we know it's a public declaration of faith. I'm saying to the whole wide world, I'm saying to my family, people around me, hey, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. I mean, I'm going to put Jesus first in my life because I believe there's no no one like him. Now, we see that all throughout the Bible, specifically in the Gospels, but oh my, 
in the book of Acts. I'm going to go to Acts 4 right now. Again, if you have your smartphone, your Bible, and you want to turn to these different passages we're going to look at, Acts 4 is where we're going to go. But this is Acts chapter 4. It's just the first two verses. So this is what Luke is telling us in, in the book of Acts. He says, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. It says, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So you and I would understand the teaching of Jesus is this, is that if you and I put of our faith in trust in him, it means that even though we die, we'll live. This is the promise of Jesus, that if, if we put him first, even though we live, we will come back from the dead. And so it's this event, this event called the resurrection that totally changes everything, including Peter and John. And now they're, they want to put Jesus first. They want to do everything that he says because, again, there's no one quite like him. I'm going to go to verse 3 now. Acts 4, 3 is where we're going to continue. And it says this. It says, they, the religious leaders, seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so that the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. And so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to an account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So if that is true, and I believe with all my heart that it is, that it's Jesus, Jesus, no other name, Jesus is the one that saves us, wouldn't it make total and complete sense that we put him first in everything we do? Now again, the question is always like, how? I mean, practically speaking, what does that mean? What does it look like to actually put Jesus first? Every cultural value has a measurement. It's basically a question. You'll see them on the top of your page. And the question this time is, where do I get my identity? I mean, you know if Jesus is first based off our identity, because identity determines direction. B.J. Thompson is an author. He made this statement, which I think is so powerful. He said, until Jesus is enough, nothing else will be. It's a fact. It is. I mean, it just let it sink in. Again, I would say we all go, it's true, it's true, but we still say stuff like this. We say, you know, my, my identity is found in my job. You know, it's, it's what I do, it's not who I am. My identity is found in my looks. My identity is found in my athletic ability. My identity is found in my children. My identity is found in my marriage. And you know what? Every single one of those examples are all temporary. They're all temporary. Wouldn't it make more sense? We don't, our identity is not found in a human being. Our identity is found in a supreme being who is eternal. And it's God who determines our identity. We're his children to accomplish his purposes. Now that leads us directly into our, uh, our second cultural value. And again, if Jesus is first, if he's first, then I should worship him. We should worship him, but we don't want it to be just on Sunday. 
We want it to be our lifestyle. And so this is our second cultural value, and it's this. Our love for God is big. He is great and he is good. And we worship him. We sing and we serve. We watch where he is working around us and we join him, even in the hard places. Because we know that we cannot praise God on Sunday and ignore daily injustice and poverty. We do everything to the fullest potential, using our unique gifts and opportunities to honor Jesus. A song on Sunday, yes. A lifestyle, 100%. Say, you see this in Acts 4. Go, go one more verse. Go to Acts 4.13, and this verse says this. It says, now it says, when they, the religious leaders, saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Let's get specific. Peter and John had been with Jesus for the last three years. I mean, they, they saw him preach. They heard him teach. You know, they saw him forgive people of their sins, and they saw Jesus do miracle after miracle. Again, there's one miracle in Matthew chapter 14. All the apostles, they're in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. It's early in the morning, and Jesus walks on the water to them. And again, they're totally freaked out, as they should be. Walks on the water. But then Jesus gets in the boat, off the water, in the boat. And this is what Matthew 14, says. It says, those who were in the boat, Peter and John were too, worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Worship is not defined as one thing in the Bible. Worship, one aspect of worship, though, means to bow. I can just imagine Jesus gets in the boat and all the apostles bow. They bow right in front of him because they realize he's not just anyone. And they've made a decision to put him first and foremost. And then it shows us worship is not confined to just Saturday or Sunday. It's not confined to just a specific time that we can worship God anywhere and at any time. Let's do this right now. Let's make a focused, we're going to worship Jesus, and let's do that right now through communion. Ushers, if you would go and get the communion trays. And again, communion is open to any person who believes and trusts in Christ. And so I encourage you right now, just think about this. Take a few moments as you get the cup and as you get the piece of bread, and think about this. Worship the one who walked on water. Worship the one who forgave people of all their sins, including you and myself. I mean, worship the one who actually called himself God. There is no one quite like the King of Kings. Father, we are coming here this day. We have gathered here this day because we believe and trust in you, and we are so thankful for your son. We're so thankful, Lord Jesus, for what you did so long ago on that cross. And it is our desire to, for you to be first and foremost in our lives. It's our desire to worship you, not just on one day, but each and every day in this life. We're so thankful, Jesus, for what you did. We're so thankful for the suffering on the cross that enables us to be completely forgiven of any sin we've ever committed. And so now we take this time, we pause, and we are truly worshiping you because you are the King of kings. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Let's be honest. How many of you heard tag team and was hoping that either Greg or I would end up in a headlock or figure four? Anybody? 
It's not that kind of, we don't want to be on the news for that reason. So when looking at our next two cultural values of the gospel is central and we are family, it occurs to me that these are the culmination of the greatest story ever told and the greatest application of the greatest story ever told. So here at Westville Christian Church, as I was preparing to give this message, I thought, and I ended up in John chapter 14, verse 6. And that's where Jesus says this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it occurred to me, that's a really good summary of these, how these two cultural values play together. At Westerville Christian Church, we express the great news in this way. Oh, good. I thought I was going to have to memorize it. Uh, we are not bad people trying to be good. We are dead people made alive. The gospel is the good news. It's about forgiveness for a fallen people. It's about life to the fullest through Jesus, doing what we could never do. It's about God's rescue mission and his gracious gift. We receive it, and our words and actions reflect it. The gospel shows us how we can be right with God. Good is not as good as righteous. So even though Greg just said it, we got to repeat it, right? So the great news is that God in human form came in the way of Jesus. He came to earth. He died a terrible death. But then he was resurrected. And he was resurrected so that sacrificially sinners like you and I get to spend eternity in heaven with our Father. That is the greatest gift. But what I often find myself doing is pondering, what am I supposed to do with that gift? So speaking of gifts, Valentine's Day was recently, and my wife and I gave each other the gift of time. So over dinner that night, we got to talking about something, because for us, Valentine's Day is bittersweet. See, several years ago, her grandmother passed away on Valentine's Day. And for whatever reason, ourselves talking about that. And my wife was reminiscing how in the closing moments of her grandmother's life, she would tell stories. She would talk about things, give the context of her life. And as I was thinking about this message, I imagined that at no point during that conversation did Grandma Hupp say, lean in, I forgot to unplug the curling iron. I just don't imagine that that's the context of the things that she said. When you're looking death in the face, you only talk about the important things. Jesus modeled this as well. So earlier in chapter 13 of the Gospel of John, we get to come in to the Last Supper. We get to spend moments with Jesus and his disciples as Jesus is staring death in the face. And I imagine maybe there was a pause, a moment of silence, a deep breath. But then when all attention was on Jesus, he leaned in and he said, don't eat unclean meat. No, that's not at all what Jesus said. <laughs> Jesus said this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. But for Jesus, it was bigger than that, right? 
So it wasn't about the words, it was about the words in action. So even before he said those words, earlier in chapter 13, we hear about how Jesus took off his robe, tied the towel around his waist, got down on one knee, got out the basin of water, and washed his disciples' feet. Here was their king sacrificially displaying love to his disciples. So the disciples had spent Jesus' entire ministry career with him, so they got it. But if we look at the people outside of that group, they didn't get it. There was lots of pushback. We see in the scripture things like this. Who exactly is my neighbor? Uh, Is your teacher really going to eat with sinners and tax collectors? See, the idea was those outside of Jesus' inner circle wanted to keep the group small. They wanted a convenient, safe, comfortable list of people that they were to be loving on. But all we need to do is look at the life of Jesus, and we see that he spent time with people like this. These people aren't necessarily safe. It's not necessarily convenient to love on them. But Jesus did life in the trenches. The way of Jesus is to be in the trenches. So following that example from Jesus is where we get our cultural value of we are family. Church is not about membership. It's about relationship. More than an organization to join, we are a family to which we belong. We need each other. We pray for each other. We root our lives within our family and walk with each other through good times and bad. We know that growing happens best in circles, not rows. So for me personally, I'm thankful every day that Jesus took this broad view of who he included when he said we are to love one another. I like to always be authentic and personal. I think that's the way you reach people. So here it goes. So growing up in the first generation where parents got divorced, the professionals really had no idea how to help us. So we were forced to figure it out on our own. I'm standing here, I'm talking to you about Jesus, so clearly on the other side of that I turned out okay. So far, there's still time. But there was a period where I went through a significant prodigal stage. At that time, uh, our cultural value says we measure it by 2 a.m. friends. I had some pretty unsavory 2 a.m. friends. But by the grace of God, at just the right time, he introduced me to another equally broken prodigal named Kristen. What neither of us realized is that God had charted a safe path through our self-destruction to right where he wanted us to be. You know why he does that? Because like Greg said earlier, we have a really good God who is good all the time. So, we thank God every day for that gift, but we often find ourselves asking, what are we supposed to do with it? So for us, we took Jesus very seriously and took a really broad view of what it means to have a family. So you can't talk about family without some family pictures, so here we go. So this is from our 2020 Welcome to the New Year card because our 2019 Merry Christmas card did not happen. So what you'll notice is that our youngest daughter, Sophia, she has a nice permanent tan. She's sitting over there with a weird face. Uh, But if this were a video, you would see her very 
you would hear her very saucy Latino accent. Because Sophia joined our forever family in February 2018 by way of adoption. Then there's this tall kid. Uh, his name is Nikolai. Nikolai is an exchange student from Poland. He came into our family because we received a very simple email, urgent need, and we said yes. He just needed a place to stay for a school year because whoever was supposed to house him, it fell through, and we just said yes. Adoption, exchange students, not comfortable, not always convenient, but they are the way of Jesus. So here's some other parts of our family. This is, our, this is my baseball family. I got a soccer family. This is my all-pro dad family. I could have put my small group family. I could have put my work family. Could have put, I don't know, the people down the street family. Here's my, one of my favorite families, our volleyball family. So if you usually come to 11.30, thank you for stacking the chairs so that we can play volleyball. But my point is that sharing the gospel on the baseball diamond at work with a bunch of people playing volleyball who don't necessarily believe, not comfortable and not safe, but it is the way of Jesus. What we find is that the people outside of Jesus' circle were right. People are broken, we're broken. That means we're dangerous. And so people have stolen from us, people have lied about us, and people have abused our kindness. But you know what? If you follow the way of Jesus, you will also get the opportunity to share the gift, and they will accept it, some of them, and they will be saved. And that is amazing. So I wanna end on this. So God doesn't discriminate against who he welcomes into his family or who he uses to bring others into the family photo album. He just instructs us to follow his example, to love one another. As I was sharing, what I don't want you to take away is look at me. I'm a broken person, but when God uses broken people, amazing things can happen. When, God, when you allow God to expand the box of who's in your family, good things can happen. When you allow God to blow the roof off of your love for him and other people see it, amazing things can happen. When, God, when you allow God to use your personal truth instead of hiding it, you will be amazed at what can happen. And as Dan is about to take the stage to talk about our next cultural value, when you are generous, you will be amazed at what God can do. All right, Dan. Are we having fun yet with these uh, tag team preachers here? Uh, don't worry, I'm not gonna jump off the top rope on anybody. Uh, it wouldn't be good for me either. So the next cultural value, John just said it, is generosity is normal. And so when I think about generosity, I'm reminded about 14 years ago, I was a struggling youth minister at a church, had been married for about a year. We had just welcomed in to our family a brand new baby. And uh, trying to make those ends meet, it was difficult. I remember going into the office one day, and in my staff mailbox was a letter. And typically, I didn't get letters. Usually, it was some sort of advertisement for some youth ministry thing or something like that. So I hurriedly opened that, and inside, I was happy to see this simple note. Thank you for what you do for the kids. 
And with that note was a gift card to Walmart for $100. And way back then, $100 could buy me a whole lot of diapers. And so that taught me something very simple, and it's this. I learned quickly that when the church is healthy, when the church is operating as it should operate, generosity is normal. And deep down within all of us, we do have a desire to be generous, to emulate Jesus in that way, to understand that Jesus was incredibly selfless and overwhelmingly generous, and we want to be just like that. In fact, here at Westerville Christian, generosity is a big part of our new discipleship process that looks like this. We want to gather and worship. We're doing that here right now. We want to grow in community with other people, and we want to give generously of our time, our treasure, and our talent as well. And we get this concept from the first church. What I love about Westerville and churches like Westerville is we don't want to try to make anything up. We just simply want to try to emulate what the first church did in that first century, now in our 21st century context. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 45. Go ahead and turn there. We know at this point the first church was bursting onto the scene. And it wasn't this huge organization in terms of structure and staff members and things like that. What we can learn here is that they were extremely raw and generous. And so we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 45, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. They didn't wait for someone else to rise up and to meet these needs. The church said, hey, we recognize that in our culture, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, we need to meet some needs. And we're not going to wait on anybody else to meet the need. We will meet that need. Just a few chapters later, in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35, the church was imperfect. They faced trouble. They were persecuted. They weren't super organized. And so we see uh, just a couple chapters later how they were doing when it comes to generosity. Verse 32 of chapter 4. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them, and with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of lands or houses would sell them and bring the, need, the proceeds of the, of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would distribute to each as any had need." We all know that generosity is a wonderful, very important virtue. In fact, we would know, we would understand with what it says in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, we would all agree with this, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And studies confirm what we already know to be true if you are a generous person, that when we are generous, our happiness, it increases. And when we are generous, our purpose, it simply increases in our lives. Generosity should be something that is normal for all of us. And the measure for our generosity to know if it is normal is quite simply this. How am I giving of my time, my talent, and my treasure? And my encouragement to all of us in this room, myself included, is would we spend some time this week and do a life inventory and ask the question, how am I with my time? Am I selfless with my time? 
I would venture to say if you're anything like me, time is right there with our treasure. In fact, for some of us, it is a more precious commodity than our treasure because we just don't have a whole lot of it. And so are you selfless with your time? How about your treasure? Are you working towards tithing? Are you working towards the principles we see in the scripture where God says, would you test me in this? And would you see if I would bless you? Are we at that point in our lives and our relationship with Jesus where we can go beyond the 10% and just be completely generous as God leads us? And thirdly, are we the kinds of people that recognize, hey, God has given me some talents. They're not mine. They're on loan from him. And how am I sharing my talent with the rest of the world to first bless God and to bless others? Because friends, you and I were made for more. And that's our next cultural value. We were made for more. I remember being in high school and it was after a Sunday school class and a leader pulled me into the Sunday school room and on a whiteboard drew a, a, a dartboard of sorts, a target, a bullseye of sorts and had this conversation with me. Now, I need to have a little disclaimer here. I have forgiven him for what he said to me at that point in time. He's a great man. And I think his message was trying to inspire me to go deeper with Jesus. But this is what he said. He said, Dan, you know, there are some students that every time the doors are open, In our church building, they're here, and they're on fire. You're not always here. And there are some other students that maybe aren't here all the time, but we think that, you know, they're following Jesus, and maybe they're on the the second band, and then some on the third band. Dan, you're not even on this chart. You're not even on this board. And I remember thinking for a long time, well, that must be true. I wasn't made for more. And in the eyes of God, I'm missing the mark. And I struggled with that for a long time. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel the exact same way, that you're missing the mark, that when a preacher says to you, hey, you're made for more, it doesn't resonate with you. But this morning, here's a truth that we can all own and believe, and it's this. The church is God's plan A to rescue the world. There is no plan B. When David is talking about this, when David Platt is talking about this, he's not saying some institution, some building, some group of men, some leaders on a Wednesday night at some board meeting. This, he's not talking about that. He's talking about you and me, the people. We are God's plan A. And we were made for more to see people being brought to life. We were made for more. And what's the plan The plan A can be found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. It looks like this. This is what the plan A is all about. For we are God's masterpiece. Say masterpiece. Friends, you hit the mark. You are God's prized creation. He saved his best for the very end. We are his masterpiece. And he created us anew in Christ Jesus. And here's the why. Here's what we were created for, that more component, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You were made for more. About a month ago, I had the privilege of preaching just a couple chapters later from Ephesians 2 to Ephesians 4. I don't have time to go through this right now, but I just want to kind of summarize what the church, what you and I were created for. It says in Ephesians chapter 4, we were created to build up the body of Christ. We were to help the church to attain unity. We were to help people mature and grow. What an exciting mission. We were made for more. I was made for more. 
You were made for more. You are God's plan A. We are God's plan A. There is no plan B. And the measure for this value is quite simply this. Who am I a direct part of transforming and mobilizing? And here's how this fits in to our overall discipleship strategy. It looks like this. I gather and worship and I grow in community. And when I grow in community, I find great accountability. I build relationships and I hear from God through others who say, hey, you were made for more. And I think about John's pictures that he just showed there, and maybe it is on a baseball diamond for you. Maybe it is on a soccer field. Maybe it is in your small group right now that's, that's at 25 people and it's time to multiply. Maybe you feel like, hey, this church is going to plant new churches. I'm supposed to go and be sent. You were made for more. And who are you directly involved in the lives of people in terms of mobilizing them and sending them out? so that more people can hear about Jesus. Because friends, listen, not only were you made for more, your story matters, which is our final value here this morning. Your story matters, my story matters. When I thought about this value, I think about my seven-year-old son who loves to ask me as soon as they go home from work, Daddy, Daddy, I have a very important question to ask you. And I'm thinking, okay, what's the important question? Daddy, will you play Uno with me? And I have a choice to make in that moment. Will I play with him and will I be fully engaged with him? Because if you're anything like me, sometimes having conversations and sometimes being fully engaged when I'm thinking about work and I'm a list person, I love to cross things off. And when things are open-ended, I struggle with that and I struggle to be fully engaged. I think about what studies show and it's this, the average parent only spends about three and a half minutes per week in meaningful conversation and storytelling with their children. Dads, we have some work to do because the average dad only spends about 14 seconds daily in meaningful conversation with their children. The friends, we know that conversations and stories, they can change the world for good or for bad, but we have an important story to tell. We have important stories to hear, but we must be fully engaged in them. When I think of a story in John chapter 9. You can flip over there. I'll summarize. There's a man born blind, and Jesus has this really creative interaction with him. I mean, there are religious leaders and they can do nothing for this man. The doctors of the day could do nothing to help heal this man, but Jesus does something so creative. Jesus, he spits. Don't worry, I'm not gonna do this, all right? I'm not gonna demonstrate this, but he spits on the ground. He makes mud. He puts it on this man's eyes and he's healed. But these religious leaders, they're upset because Jesus, he did something on a Sabbath. He worked. He created something. He healed this man. And in their legalistic culture, that was a no-no. And so they pulled this man in who had been healed, and they asked, how did Jesus do it? What's his story? What's your story? Is he working with Satan? And we we pick up the story in John chapter 9, verse 25. He says, "I, I don't know if he's with Satan or not, but one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I can see. And his story mattered, and his story transformed those that he would tell. And it's also true for us in our lives. Our stories matter when we tell them, because they tell people about how God is building his kingdom all around us. 
Sometimes we don't know what else to say other than, hey, one, at one point in my life, as John was sharing, I was a prodigal. I'm no longer a prodigal. Or once I was blind, I couldn't see past my own two hands the purpose for my life. But now I can see because of Jesus. In fact, the Bible tells us that our stories are so powerful It gives us this imagery in Revelation chapter 12, this battle between good and evil, this battle between the church and the devil. And it says in Revelation chapter 12, here's how we overcome. We overcome evil and Satan in our lives by the blood of the Lamb. And friends, by the word of our testimony, Revelation chapter 12 verse 11, story matters, my story matters. And again, as a part of our discipleship culture here, it's one of our four G's. We go and we serve locally and globally, and then we tell stories why we're doing it. Why are you here? Why are you serving me? Why are you on mission? I do this because once I was blind, but now I can see. Jesus has transformed my life, and I got to tell you about him. And the measure with that value is who are my top three people that I'm sharing my story with? Who are my top three people I'm I'm sharing my story with? And as we end here, Jesus had a story, and the story, it had incredible purpose. And we look at it, and when Jesus said in John chapter 10, it's his story, it's his purpose. He says the thief or our enemy or Satan, his purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. Let me tell you about my story and my purpose. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying, say it with me, life. That's my story. I came to bring life. It's my purpose. I came to bring life. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd sacrifices his life for his sheep. Maybe today you just need to hear the story of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus, and to commit your life to him. He came to give you a rich and a satisfying life. And John started off as he shared with John 14, 6. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. I'm going to pray in just a moment. And if today is your day to come to him, his story, his purpose is when you come to him, you're forever changed. You're once blind, but now you can see. Is that you here today? And for others, there are some prayer cards on both sides of the stage. There are people who need that hope that Greg talked about. There are people who need to have their stories radically transformed. And our prayers can help them to see that their story and their purpose can be radically changed through Jesus. So will you pray? I'm gonna pray for us and whatever God is laying on your heart, there'll be some leaders up front if you wanna receive Jesus as Lord and Savior or if you wanna pray for those who need it. Let's do that together. Father, you're incredibly good. Many of us have heard Lord, that strategy is good, but culture eats strategy for breakfast. And we think about these values, Lord, and we know they're creating the culture here at Westerville Christian. I thank you for vision. I thank you for great leaders who have helped with your help and your word to establish these values, Lord. Help us to live them out. I pray for the person who needs to have the rich and satisfying life that Jesus talks about through his story and his purpose. May they come to know him right now. For those who are hurting, who need to have their story changed, Father, we pause and we pray for them. 
It could be a prayer card. It could be a concern in someone's heart right now, Father. And you are meeting them right now during our time of prayer. Whatever it is you want us to accomplish, God, we are all in with you. As you lead this church down this super exciting road to build your kingdom. We pray this together in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.